Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. What does identity politics mean to you? Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean's new book, Identity Politics in the United States, explores this polarizing term. It didn't just pop up during the 2016 presidential election. Brown-Dean says identity politics has been around since the time our country was founded. I sat down with her last week to talk about her book before an audience at Quinnipiac University, where she's an associate professor of political science. The reason I decided to write this book now actually was because of work that I did in 2016 surrounding the election. I spent election night at a TV studio listening to the public talk about their angst surrounding that election. And that was for people who were excited about the outcome of the election and those who were not. So across the board, we saw that. And I thought a lot about the conversations I was having with my students at the time who said, I don't understand why people just can't focus on the candidate. Why are we talking about race? Why are we talking about religion? Why aren't we just talking about economics? And so I wanted to write the book to give the context of these current controversies, and also because of something that Toni Morrison said, which was, if there is a book that you want to read that has not been written, then write the book. And so that was the book that I wanted to write. You're a political scientist. Uh, uh, Take us back to right after the 2016 elections. I understand that you went through almost uh, a time where you just blocked out a lot of what you saw on social media, on television, uh, in the papers. Why? I took a real step back from the media work that I was doing. So, you know, Lucy, you will know I took an absence from WNPR work, uh, my writing that I was doing, because I was so overwhelmed by all of the commentary that we were seeing of people lamenting the election, people celebrating the tremendous division. I think I blocked a few family members on Facebook because I was just so tired of memes about what was at stake. And in that time, I really took a step back and asked, what does it mean to have a democracy in this country? Whose voices matter in that? What is the expectation that we have of one another? And it's the same thing that my students go through. We don't have to agree, but can we at least affirm the humanity of people with whom we disagree? And how can we resist those who, in holding on to their own political views, deny that humanity in others? So yes, we are all entitled to freedom of expression, but we are also entitled to stand up and say, no, that is detrimental and undermines the sense of community. When we hear the term identity politics, we might all have different interpretations of what that means. So when you're talking about identity politics, what do you mean? I very simply mean this. All politics in the United States, and there are instances really across the world, is about identity. Um, How we see ourselves, how we see other people, and the kinds of mechanisms that we have to reinforce that distinction. I think in popular culture, identity politics has become this negative term. That's what other people do. That's what people do when they are playing the proverbial race card or, you know, trying to appeal to gender. 
And so I say to people, identity politics happens when Colin Kaepernick takes a knee on a football field to protest violence. And yet the response in the narrative is, he is disrespecting our troops. Identity politics happens in Connecticut. I'm, you know, I'm thinking earlier this year when the governor talked about regionalization and consolidating services. Identity politics came when people said, no, this is my town, and I don't want my town to be confused with that city. That's about identity. And I wanted us to understand how the very founding of this nation was about identity and why it continues to shape what we see today. Talk more about what you mean when you say, uh, so identity politics hasn't just popped up in the last uh, several years, but the fact that this has been uh, central to how our country was founded and who primarily uh, took seats of power and who were left behind. The tremendous myth that I think we're all taught in elementary school is that this was a country founded upon religious freedom, that people were escaping persecution in England and they came and they wanted to have a place where people could practice their religion freely. And what I investigate in the book is that really religious freedom was about freedom for particular religions that you still had in places like Rhode Island where Jewish residents could not become U.S. citizens because the thought was that their Jewish identity was not compatible with American patriotism. Fast forward to, you know, Irish immigrants moving into the U.S. and you have places like Boston adopting the King James Version of the Bible to keep Irish Catholic children from being in public schools. So when we hear debates about immigration today, it is reminiscent of the policies to keep people from China from becoming US citizens, or the debates we had about citizenship and military service. So on every marker, whether it's gender, it's religion, it's region, it's race and ethnicity, identity has been core in our debates about the meaning of citizenship and also the rights and protections that people have. Uh, your book takes us through a lot of different historic cases and moments in time that can be easy to forget, or maybe a lot of people just aren't too concerned about the past, but we need to understand the past to understand where we're going. Mm -hmm. And so can you tell us, when we think about all the attention on the southern border, um, as you mentioned, uh, what we can learn about you know, what happened in the past when certain people were persecuted because of where they came from, and why is it that we don't remember these moments when we're thinking about how to inform our conversations uh, with people in our community? I think often people have gotten comfortable. So they tell a very romanticized story of their family history if they know it, right? My loved ones came here, they worked really hard, they learned English, and they showed that they were American. Well, it's not really that simple. So that when you see people moving to various parts of the South, from Italy, for example, and are publicly lynched, because the idea is that we could not trust these single Italian men moving to the United States. We thought they were going to corrupt the you know, moral fabric of American women. And then these laws and policies go into effect. Um, you know, as someone who grew up in the South, I often think about many of the tactics used in the South to keep blacks from voting were inherited from the North mm -hmm. and what Northern legislators used to keep white ethnic immigrants from voting. So that kind of shared history, that shared story, to think that we just recognize Veterans Day in this country, and there are veterans who fought on behalf of the United States who have been deported. 
because there is no qualification that you have to be a citizen in order to fight on behalf of this country. And I talk a lot in the book about that idea of military service as being the ultimate indicator of patriotism, and yet for many groups, they are still denied that access. Tell us about some specific people that you write about that were uh, veterans that uh, decided to serve this country, but in the end, they weren't seen as full citizens. They weren't respected for that service. One of the stories that you know has stuck with me the most in writing this book, and I can't really get his story out of my head, is a man named Leonard Matlovich. Matlovich served in the Vietnam War, He served in the United States Air Force, was a decorated member of that force, and elevated through the ranks because of his service. He came back and was really troubled by the military's policies surrounding gay, lesbian uh, members of the military. And so Matlovich thought, if I out myself, I can show my superiors that one can be a fierce soldier and still be able to be true to the person that they love. And he thought, I just need to show you this good example of a person who is gay and also a patriot. And it backfired. So he was kicked out of the US Air Force. And for him, it was, I have fought for these protections. I have fought for freedom in Vietnam. And yet I came back to the United States, to my home country, and I have been denied. And in the book, I have a picture of his tombstone, which reads, when I was in the military, they gave me a medal for killing two men and a discharge for loving one. Mm -hmm. And that has stuck with me about how we prioritize certain lives, how we prioritize what it means to be a part of this process. And to think that was in the Vietnam War, and now we're here in 2019 having debates about whether transgender military personnel should be allowed to continue to fight. Mm -hmm. That's the same struggle of people like Jimmy Lee Jackson, who's an African-American man from Alabama, who fought in the Vietnam War, came back home, and was shot in the stomach and killed by a state trooper during a rally for voting rights. What does it mean that people are willing to risk their lives to establish democracy abroad and yet come home and can't access that simple tool called the vote? When we talk about identity politics, uh, you can't ignore intersectionality. Um, The fact that uh, all of us in this room, uh, there are things about our identity that mean that we may may relate to someone else. Um, We're not all just uh, monolithic. Mm -hmm. But we tend, when we have conversations, to want to paint people that way. So someone can look at you and see that you're a black Southern woman and assume that they know what your Mm -hmm. uh, political beliefs are, your religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. And you really get at that in your book, that we can't do that. And it's it's oversimplifying um, who we are, and it actually really taints the political process when we do that. Can you talk more about that? Sure, I think it oversimplifies who we are but it also presumes what our political beliefs should be. You know, I think about, for me, growing up in Virginia in the heart of Jerry Falwell country, where Jerry Falwell, for those of you who don't know, was creating this moral majority movement, which is a way of organizing evangelical Christians to have an impact on the political process. That was in the 1980s. 
So they were fighting against marriage equality in the 1980s. They were fighting against interracial marriage in the 1980s. And they realized that if they could organize around a religious identity, they could have an impact. And so I knew very early on that that form of Christianity did not fit with what was practiced in my home. But it made me no less of a Southern Baptist than anyone else who had that label. It just meant that in my life, it was much more complex. And I think that too often in our journalistic accounts, in our elections, it is easy to put people into a box. Because if I'm a candidate and I want to get elected, I need to think that everyone is the same because it makes it easier. And for me in this book, intersectionality isn't just about saying we are all members of different groups at once. It's really about looking at the ways that law, the political system structures the meanings of those identities and also structures the opportunities that people have to express their difference. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're listening back to my conversation with Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, taped before an audience at Quinnipiac University, where she's an associate professor of political science. Her new book is called Identity Politics in the United States. After the break, we'll learn more about her research and how identity politics is already impacting the 2020 presidential campaign trail. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live, from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're bringing you a recent conversation I had with Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University. We talked about her new book, Identity Politics in the United States, which she began writing after becoming frustrated with how the press and pundits, among others, oversimplified the 2016 presidential election. Uh, When we think about particular movements that are getting a lot of attention uh, these days, we think of the Me Too movement. We think about Black Lives Matter. Uh, But you spend a portion of your book talking about uh, populations and people who continue to be invisible, including American Indians or Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what you found and why it's also complicating to assume that if someone is Native that it means particular things because they are such a diverse group of people that have lived in this country uh, longer than the country was founded. One of the historical cases that I talk about in the book is about a man named John Elk who sued for his citizenship, who said, look, I have denounced my tribal affiliation. I'm working. I don't live on a reservation. I'm contributing to the tax base. I should be able to vote in the election. And the U.S. Supreme Court said that American Indians were never meant to be included in citizenship, and therefore he had no right to sue. That is the same language that was used against Dred Scott when he sued for his freedom. That is the same language that is used against Fred Korematsu when he is suing against the internment camps as an American-born citizen forced into these detention facilities. And I think in the case of American Indians, that sort of absence from public policy debates is really damning. When we think about uh, police violence, for example, the number of unarmed people who are killed in this country at the hands of law enforcement, 
we have to start looking at the high number of American Indians who fall into that category, who actually per capita have a higher likelihood of dying than African Americans, but the media portrayal is very different. And what's important is not to pit groups against each other to say, your pain is worse than mine, and therefore you are entitled to a bigger platform. But it's really about saying, if we underestimate the number of people who are affected by these policies or by this inaction, then we don't really reach the problem. If we don't look at the high number of Native women in this country who die because of domestic violence, then when we're looking at the Violence Against Women Act, we have to include trans women in that protection. We have to include Native women. We have to include women who traditionally are left out of those struggles because of their occupational choice. Uh, we can focus on uh, the people who are underrepresented in our political structure, uh, that institutions uh, don't um, recognize them. But you know, how do we move forward? Because we, again, we hear about the, the movements that are hip, so to speak. But there's also, I think, a level of frustration that uh, no matter uh, what someone protests, that there's still going to be certain people in power that are going to hold them back. So how do, you, how do you give advice to your students, or how do you, as a political scientist, talk people through uh, the, the fact that they shouldn't give up on democracy? So my students will laugh, for those of you who are in the room tonight, because I tell them that my favorite concept is what? federalism, right? That division of power, which means that the inaction that you see at the federal government does not mean that you can enact change at the local and state level. And actually, that is the most important change. It can have an impact on your everyday lived experience. So what I often tell young people is, you all have access to technology in a way that my generation never could have imagined. What are you going to do with that? How do you do that to bring attention to the cost of higher education? How do you do that to draw attention to the fact that in this country, there are children right now who don't have access to safe, clean drinking water? What is the legacy that you want to build? So we can spend all of our time blaming older generations, and, but we can't okay boomer our way out of that, right? We have to commit to that. And I think young people are very much aware of that. Part of the joy for me of being a professor is that I get to talk to these young people every day who push back against that popular narrative that young people don't really care about anything, they're not doing anything, they do. But they're frustrated and they're fed up because they understand that if people will not pass the baton so that they can bring in their ideas, then maybe it's time for you to take that baton and not wait for someone to put you in that position. That's an important thing to say, but we just wrapped up a municipal election here in Connecticut, um, and other states held theirs as well, and you know the turnout is abysmal. Uh, people are not engaged, uh, unless you're um, seeing or living in a city where there's some interesting uh, new faces that are running, it's like you saw in mm -hmm. Middletown, Connecticut, uh, even in New Haven, there was an interesting uh, race between someone who tried to be mayor before and who prevailed this time around. Uh, but it doesn't seem that people are really engaged. They don't understand that it's the local elections mm -hmm. or they can really make an impact. It is the local election that will determine the protections of public safety. It will determine access to the type of education that you have. It will determine something as basic as whether your street gets cleaned. 
but it also is the place where you have the greatest opportunity. There are young people in this room who have worked in mayor's offices who understand that the more people call with a complaint about a particular issue, the more likely it is that a mayor or a local official will respond to that. Um, I often rib my students to say, you know, you live here in Hamden. Yes, you are a university student, but you are a resident of this place. You need to raise your voice. If there is conflict surrounding relationships between a town government and local residents, what are you doing to change that narrative? You know, what are you doing to say, we have something to offer? And how are you going to be a part of that, whether it is your time here in college or wherever you go back to? And the other joy, I think, of this particular part of my life is that I know that not every student in my class wants to become a political scientist. I have made peace with that. But whatever field and occupation, I hope they will, we need more people, right? Whatever field and occupation they go into, I want them to take with them the lessons that they've encountered in my class. I want my students in my power and punishment class to go into their work as educators or as business leaders understanding that the way we punish people in this country simply is not working. And what will they do when they become an entrepreneur, making a lot of money, donating a portion of that money back to this university that they love just saying, right? <laughs> what will they do to create job opportunities for the formerly incarcerated? Because they understand it's not just about that one person who has broken the law, it's about their family, their neighborhood, and their community. And that's where I see my role in this space and why I get excited to be able to do this and to get paid to do it. Like I'm a lifelong nerd. This is the stuff I got teased about growing up and now I get paid to read, to write, to think and to talk to people. What's better than that? Yeah. You know, on our show, we often benchmark, so we'll look to other states, uh, sometimes other countries when we're think talking about domestic issues, about what we can learn from other places or where we can do better. And I'm curious when we think about identity politics, are there other countries that you've looked at and about how identity is portrayed and are there lessons or do we not actually have it so bad here? I think it's all relative. I think that if you ask our friends in England right now, what they think, right? In the midst of all this uncertainty of the Brexit vote, they'll say maybe you don't have it so bad. But what I think we have to understand is that even if it is a human function to see difference or to make distinctions, what is unique about this country is how we act on those distinctions. That the issues about immigration we're facing in the US are issues that people in Canada are grappling with, that people in Great Britain are grappling with as well. And that's part of a global phenomenon. But I also think that in a country like the United States, which lauds itself as being the world's premier democracy, we have a unique obligation to get this thing right. And I remain hopeful that we will if we are able to address those tough conversations that students deal with every day in the classroom. Mm -hmm. What about when we think about how um, 
um, there isn't a lot of civil discourse uh, uh, these days. And because the, the, the fact that so many of us are on social media and it's easy to uh, put opinions there, uh, we're often uh, preaching uh, to uh, uh, the choir mm -hmm. or talking within an echo chamber where no one's really thinking about different perspectives. And sometimes that happens on college campuses too, uh, where people might come from different geographic locations or different classes and they may not have the same political beliefs, mm -hmm. but they, sometimes people feel like they're being shunned because of who they are mm -hmm. and what they believe. So how do you encourage that kind of discourse here at Quinnipiac? I try to create a space in my classrooms and my work to say I'm not here to tell you how to think. I'm here to challenge you to think, to think critically, to think analytically, and to understand that while you have the right to your opinion, and you have the right to express your opinion, I also have the right to respond to that opinion. And I think for a college campus, it can also be difficult. I tell my students, college is the one place in your life where you can make a mistake, where you can mess up, where you may say things clumsily that in the workspace, you would be fired or canceled out. So what are you doing to be open to that, to understand, for me, going to college was this amazing experience. I had never met people from Eritrea before I went to college. You know, it was amazing to me that I went to college whose parents were actual royalty. I never imagined that in my little town. But it also meant that I was open to that difference and to challenge everything I thought I knew so that even at the end of that experience, I knew for me and what I want for my students that college is not about just vocational training. It's not just about taking a bunch of disparate classes to lead to a degree and then lead to a job. The training is really about how do you become active, informed, and engaged as a global citizen to encounter difference, to understand that just because that's what your parents told you all your life about other groups, maybe that's not the case. And I think it is difficult on a closed campus to grapple with that. But I think that now more than ever, we have to be willing to do that. We think historically, every major movement for political change in this country happened at the hands of young people on college campuses, in the streets, in communities. Where's the next movement going to come? I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today, we're listening back to a conversation with Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University and author of Identity Politics in the United States. She joined us in front of an audience at Quinnipiac's Mount Carmel Auditorium to talk about her book. So I wanted to uh, sh shift gears and let's talk about 2020, Kalila. Oh, Lucy. <laughs> because there's so much focus on, you know, the mistakes uh, whether it's uh, in conversation among uh, our communities, whether it's the way the media uh, covered uh, 2016, but we now are on the brink of another really important election. And I was thinking about you know, all of the uh, important points that I read in your book, Identity Politics, and yet we're still, I think, making those same mistakes when we look at these slate of candidates who are, uh, you know, it's great to see so many names out there, but yet again, it's easy to think, well, will uh, the black vote go for Kamala Harris? Or uh, what do people think of Mayor Pete? Because he's a veteran, but he's mm -hmm. also gay. Mm -hmm. And the, and again, interpretations of how we think people are going to vote because of who a candidate is. Can you talk more about that? I think we see that a lot right now. 
you know, I've been really disturbed by the discussions over the last two weeks that, you know, Mayor Pete isn't really polling well with black voters because they're homophobic. And I thought, wait a minute, if that is the message that we're putting out, then what does that mean for black gay voters who are trying to decide who is the candidate that will represent their interest? And the same ways that it's problematic to say this is the black vote or this is the women's vote. We look at the results of 2016 and it was clear that that was not the case. When you see the large numbers of white women who voted for Donald Trump, the numbers of Latinos or black men that voted for Donald Trump, that should be statistical evidence that that kind of simplistic notion is flawed. But I think it's also important how candidates position themselves. What does it mean for Kamala Harris to be at once an Indian American woman and an African American woman? How will she navigate what's important to her? How do you layer on issues of policy so that Tulsi Gabbard is saying, yes, I am a woman, but don't vote for me because of that. Vote for me because I am the candidate who has these issues on foreign policy or those other kinds of things. And regardless of the high-minded ideals that we all might have, the reality is that we know there are people in this country who will not vote for a candidate simply because of their perceived identity. And that happens much more often than people voting for someone just because their identities match. I think the, the big lesson we have to know from American politics is just because you look like me does not mean you will think like me or that you represent my best interests. Mm. When we look back at 2016, you believe that uh, the, one of the mistakes was because Hillary Clinton was this first uh, woman candidate uh, nominee uh, running in the Democratic Party that all women were going to vote for her? I think that being first can be a hollow prize because the assumption is that to be the first, you now need to bring everyone with you. And it undermines the differences that exist within communities. And so people could say, yes, it is great that Hillary Clinton is the first woman to ascend to this particular ranking, but if she does not connect with voters, if voters have questions not about her credentials, but about her policy, doesn't it undermine the cause of representative democracy that people are encouraged to vote simply because of a particular identity? And I think 2016 was so clouded by the negative portrayals of particular communities. When you de demonize Latinos, when you demonize undocumented people, when you have this debate with gold star families who have made the ultimate sacrifice, then it sets the tone for what we should expect. It set the tone for the 2018 midterm elections. It has set the tone for elections we saw last week across the country in places like Kentucky. And it will set the tone for 2020 when the stakes are even higher. Because to be in the middle of this historical moment in you know, only the fourth time in US history where we've authorized an impeachment investigation, that will naturally heighten the attention that people pay. To go into 2020 where it's also the US Census, where how we count people and where we count people will determine the resources. So that 20 years ago when people said, look at all this racial and ethnic diversity in the United States, this is amazing. There were other people who said, but what about me? and saw that not as progress, but as erasure. And that's why I think 2020 will be unique, not just compared to 2016, but overall in this country.
You spent nine months of your life writing this book. Anything that surprised you about your research? A lot surprised me. You know, these are the things that I thought I knew. This is what I teach. This is what I study. This is what I've been doing. And what surprised me was the importance of who is telling the story and how who tells the story really sets the tone for what we think we should be doing. For me to have the opportunity to learn about two-spirit identity within American Indian cultures, to learn about you know, women who had made these sacrifices not because they felt compelled to do it, but because that's what they thought they should do to understand the tremendous challenges that exist in this country right now surrounding religious identity. So what does it mean that Congress is being pushed to get rid of the Johnson Amendment, which protects the separation of church and state, right? Will that really benefit everyone practicing their religious belief? No. And that was the surprise for me. But I think, Lucy, the the greatest surprise, I, like many other people, often lament and complain about what I see as the lack of progress in this country, the surprise was looking at the research and saying, wait a minute, there has been remarkable change. And how do we hold on to that? How do we lift that up? And how do we strengthen that? I did want to ask you, when we talk about the 2020 election and uh, shifting demographics, you know, Julian Castro made some news the other day suggesting that Iowa should not be the first caucus, that it should be uh, moved to uh, states that represent more of the population of America. What's your take on that? I think it is an amazing point. The rules of the game matter. And when you base who is viewed as a viable candidate to represent this big, diverse country, and you choose to do that based on a group of voters who do not match that diversity, not just in terms of race and ethnicity, but also class, it means something. It sets the tone for who we should vote for, but also what we are talking about. And that if, in fact, the goal is a representative democracy, then we should be in places that look like that where people's $5 campaign donations can be valued and that it's not just about what state fair you go to or what diner you go to. It's really about the message that you put out and what resonates with voters. So who has the power to make that change? The American people have the power to make that change, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's in Iowa's state constitution, what they do. Mm-hmm. But at the end of it, it's all about power. Do I think that the people of Iowa will say, oh, you're absolutely right. We should not receive all of this attention. No. But do I think other states could start looking at their their state charters and challenge some of that? Of course. Um, You know, it's been a 200-year conversation about why we have an electoral college. Mm -hmm. People get really riled up, and then they forget about it and go to the next thing. We can't afford to do that. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we'll hear more from Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, author of the new book, Identity Politics in the United States. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. How do you see identity politics playing out in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election? We talked about identity politics recently at Quinnipiac University with Dr. Kalila Brandeen, who's an associate professor of political science there. We taped this conversation before an audience at Quinnipiac's Mount Carmel Auditorium, and we took their questions, too. So what I notice a lot in, like, debates for 2020 is, like, the media trying to just get sound bites instead of, like, actually trying to, like, see what's the truth. Like, they'll ask... Well, will Medicare for all raise middle class taxes, but then they won't pursue like where the money is actually coming from, that it would cost less for Americans to actually afford that. So my question is, why do they just pursue sound bites and what can we do to like combat that? Yeah. That's a good question. I guess the I was wondering, do you think when you're watching that that that's really a debate when you've got twenty people on stage? Uh, with a time constraint. I mean, it, to me, it's uh, counterintuitive uh, and doesn't really, it's not productive, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I don't think it's productive, but I also don't think it's, it's realistic. Mm-hmm. That's not actually how political debates and discussions happen, where you line up 20 people. And so it's not just that the media is trying to get sound bites. The candidates are trained to give a sound bite, right? You've got to break through the noise. So you need a snappy one-liner so that at the end of the debate, you may have only spoken for two minutes, but people will remember that one-liner that you wrote. You will remember Bernie Sanders saying, I wrote the blank bill. And that stands out. We can say, damn, I wrote the damn I just want to make bill. sure, right? So FCC <laughs> regulations for students in my intro course, I want to make sure I'm well within the bounds. And so that is the thing, right? Media has to break through the noise, but candidates are trying to do that. And so I think for young people in particular, what are the alternative ways that you think we should be having those conversations? I think it's something where podcasts are so important here Mm -hmm. because you can go in depth on an issue. You can present all sides of an issue and have those kinds of discussions to counter that and to supplement that. Um, It is why for my, my intro students, I say to them, regardless of your political views, follow PolitiFact on Twitter. So that when you're watching these debates, you can look at that truthometer and see, uh, that really was not true. And then you can make those informed decisions for yourself. We talked in class today about um, public opinion toward Obamacare versus Affordable Care Act. No, it's the same thing. But each of the people who were interviewed had a, no, I don't like the idea that we're going to force people to have health coverage. I like affordable care because it's affordable. But it's the same thing. So the way that we frame issues, if we frame it as something as simplistic as, will my taxes go up or not? Then you get people to get riled up into that. Uh, Carmen, there's a question. Hi. So my question is kind of springing off of that one. Since politicians are trained to speak on, to give a good soundbite, what do you think of the effect of like news and becoming entertainment and like politics becoming entertainment? It's almost like watching two separate sports teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely want to know who's on first, right? I think that if we look at the competition in the market, People aren't really getting their information from newspapers where you can write in long form and have all of that. 
I was shocked how many people told me that they get their news from Instagram and Snapchat. That was shocking to me. But then I realized, okay, well, that should have an impact on how we communicate the news. Because if we know that people are going to look for headlines or looking for short snippets, how do we do that? And the other thing that I would say is that people complain a lot about media. They complain a lot about journalism. I would say we need journalism, good journalism, now perhaps more than ever. And if we look at historically, you know, I'm from Virginia. I went to the University of Virginia. Thomas Jefferson was drilled into our heads almost from birth. Um, I probably shouldn't say this on the air. My mother will cringe. But I was kicked off a field trip to Thomas Jefferson's plantation because I asked a question about, is it true that he actually fathered children by an enslaved woman on the plantation? And I was promptly sent back to the bus for asking that question. Right, But if we look at media coverage of Thomas Jefferson during that time, it was salacious, it was sensationalized, it was less about the work than about sort of the you know, entertainment value of that. So there's a long history of it. The difference is that now anyone with a smartphone and an internet connection can put something out and people latch onto it. You can create a meme of something that was said or done tonight faster than we can get to the door. And people then put that forth as truth. So journalists have an obligation and have a responsibility. But we as consumers also have an obligation and responsibility to demand more. Thank you. I just had a, a quick question about some of the legal language you referenced earlier about um, Native Americans and the um, internment camps for the Japanese during World War II, the Dred Scott decision. Mm -hmm. Do you see us headed down that same path with DACA? Oh, that's an amazing question. So the fact that the United States Supreme Court is right now deciding whether young people who were brought here to this country through no fault or no choice of their own should continue to be protected means that we have made decisions, legal decisions, about not only whose lives matter in the US, but also the perceived worth of people and what they can contribute. So at the same time the court is deciding about DACA and the protection of young people, there are families in Mississippi who a year later are still reeling from the raids on a chicken processing plant. What does it mean that 400 people were arrested in that raid, removed from their families, children come home from school and mommy and daddy aren't there, but no one from the plant has been arrested? No one from the plant has been prosecuted. What does it mean for the Mississippi Delta, which has been devastated economically, to lose one of the major suppliers and job providers? And so I think when we look at Dred Scott, when we look at Korematsu, when we think about DACA, people have to understand this sort of you know, African proverb, I am because we are and we are because I am. So what happens to those children in Mississippi has an impact on the economy of that entire region, which has an impact on all of us. And that is why I think the historical narrative is so important. That for many of us, the terms of our citizenship is assumed. I was born here, I'm okay. 
And then we are reminded every day by people like Leonard Matlevich, like Jimmy Lee Jackson, like undocumented youth who said, this is all I've ever known. What does that mean? And I think it's also why people say to me, like, we shouldn't politicize these things. Well, I didn't politicize it. The person making the, de the decision <laughs> politicized it. How do we navigate that? And to understand that it is literally life or death for many people. In Connecticut, for example, after um, all of the conversations about ICE raids, my husband works for the Department of Children and Families. His concern was that there are all of these kids who are afraid that their parents will be deported. These kids may not be going to school. What's the impact on our public school system when you have that kind of uncertainty? Or if these kids are left without a, a guardian that can be respected, do they then go into the foster care system, which is already stretched, which as we know, kids of color, older kids are less likely to be adopted out. And that's the narrative that to me is more complex than what's your political party, what's your ideology, really what is the transactional cost of deciding people's worth. And I think, you know, 400 years after 1619, we are still having that discussion. Hi. I come from an area that, like many areas towards the center of the country, is very homogenous racially, ethnically, in terms of class. And so when we think about identity politics and people tending to tend towards candidates and policies that benefit them, how can we get people who are from homogenous areas like that who don't have much exposure to the issues outside of their own to, I guess, consider other people's identities? As we go into this 2020 election, we'll start hearing a lot about the real America, which is this mythical place, <laughs> right, where all the good patriotic people live who just want to go to work every day and take care of their families. Real America is in the quiet corner of Connecticut. Real America is in Hamden, Connecticut. Real America is in Jackson, Mississippi. And so I think what we see, I think about, for example, Kentucky last week. It wasn't that all of a sudden people became more liberal or became more democratic. It was that people understood, I don't really care what's happening in Washington. All I know is that when I need to go to a doctor, I can't get to one because the health clinic has been closed because my state would prefer to oppose the Affordable Care Act than to provide medical coverage, medical coverage to its residents. And people said, this is affecting us in a way that we did not anticipate and we need something different. That I think is the conversations that can happen in homogenous towns where you know, for them, immigration isn't really a concern but the opioid crisis is a concern. And if we cede those kinds of policy issues to the places that we think aren't like us, it's why I get upset when people use Chicago as a trope. Mm -hmm. If you really care about kids in Chicago getting shot, then you would care about it outside of elections. Because it also means in a place like Connecticut where people are having these discussions about yes, what happened there is horrible, but should that have an impact on me? That's where we can intervene. So when you talk about like identity politics and it being like all the US um, politics have to do with identity and how us as American people have the right to like make those changes for it and stuff like that. Do you think that because of like 
how much people are against different identities that it's going to continue to be a problem or can we change it or will the fractionalism of it just make it a continuous problem throughout like the rest of like generations i refuse to give up hope that we'll get it right and i say that because i know for me in my life from where i came from it is evidence of progress and of possibility I talk in the book about my grandparents. My grandfather had an eighth grade education. He had to drop out of school to go help support his family. He never could have imagined that his granddaughter would be sitting here as a first generation college graduate with a PhD. But he knew that he believed in something and he was willing to work for that. It is also why I think this notion that we need to be colorblind or post-racial is flawed. Because if you look at me and you don't see my color, then you know it, it denies who I am. The intervention that needs to happen is not that we stop seeing difference. It is about the value, the judgment, and the behavior that we attach to that difference. There is no weakening of American democracy by people identifying however they choose to. I'm always interested in who is in the position to make the determination of what your choices are and what your choices should mean. And I, you know, again, I have hope that we'll get it right. I am also keenly aware and preparing myself that 2020 will be nasty, that 2020 will be divisive, but it doesn't have to be. And that's why I hope this book will help strengthen our conversation, but also encourage us to do more listening than talking. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown with help from Carmen Baskoff and Jared Todd. You can learn more about the show by downloading Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend. <laughs>